Hey everybody, it's John. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, if you like what you're hearing here, please share it. Share it anywhere you can. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of your social media platforms. It really helps us get the word out. So thanks. Here's this month's episode. You found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM LP. I'm Jonathan Ammons. And I'm Kelly Denson, sitting in for Katherine Campbell, who is away for her wedding. Congrats to Kat and Brandon. One of the hardest working people I know. Enjoy that well-earned break, Kat. Have a safe trip. Consider this our toast to their marriage and the idea of getting to build your own families. Here's the latest from Thin Lips from their record, Chosen Family. I remember having a dream about a naked woman. And I ran downstairs crying. Mom, I think I'm gay. Five or six. I was I was little. And, and she said, uh, "You're so young. You could possibly know that." I was comforted by that because I didn't want to go to hell. I was very afraid for my mortal soul so much and so often. But once I finally settled into it, pushing my own personal boundaries and unlearning all of this like painful stuff that I queer to me means like boundary pushing and love and community and relationship and things from our childhoods that stick with us. For some, they still have that childhood blanket slung over the chair in their apartment at 40. For others, it's a painting or a toy that follows them their entire life, tethering them back to their childhood. For science writer and Rutgers University professor Kitta McPherson, she finds her anchor in a morning ritual, a special spoon, and a very particular yellow box. I am an ocean. 
Simple things, fragile, weak items are my tides. Invisibly they move me. A carnival of colors, shapes, objects, and savors stir me to my depths and are portals to potent memories. In the tumult that is life, I know this. When I touch certain bowls in a particular spoon, when I encounter specific tastes, I am comforted and, for the moment, content. Most mornings, I start with a search for one of my golden, hand-painted terracotta bowls stacked in a kitchen cabinet. I acquired them in 2012 at a shopping mall in Princeton, New Jersey, during a summer sale. I can recall the blinding brightness of the sun and how it matched a happy turn my life had taken. These sturdy bowls are mightier than they seem. They can hold a pint of black bean chili, two cups of mulligatawny soup, or 16 ounces of milk and Cheerios. They beckon the hungry. With their inner concave surfaces, they gleam a milk chocolate brown. Bright bands of mustard gold ring their outer shells. Yellow and black filigrees dance along the rim where you place your lips and gulp when no one's watching. Most arresting are the bull's six-inch-high sunflowers, each clinging to the next. They dance in a ring, playing a children's game. In my cabinets there are many bowls. Only one of the four sunflower half-orbs will do for breakfast. I once possessed six. Two have gone missing, the second a few months ago. Days after that disappearance, I found shards forming a sunburst in the kitchen garbage. The bowl remnants peeked from beneath a Twining's Earl Grey tea bag and a mound of ragu-stained rigatoni. No one confessed to the demolishment. I couldn't bring myself to ask. The loss of that bowl hurt, sucking the sunshine out of me. My every morning eating utensil, my battered sterling silver Mary Poppins spoon, is one with the character it conveys. The object cannot be separate from the idea. A miniature version of the heroine of both P.L. Travers' book series and the 1964 Walt Disney movie forms the upper reaches of the spoon handle. It stands no more than an inch and a half high. An examination of the formed metal shows Mary to be in her movie work clothes. She balances a carpet bag in her left hand with the parrot hook of an open umbrella in her right. The two-dimensional form, configured like a bas-relief, is jaunty, her flower-bedecked hat adding to the sauciness. If you clasp the spoon between thumb and forefinger, hold it high and swoop it into your cereal bowl, you can imagine Mary flying, all prim and businesslike, as if anyone can do it. One sunny summer afternoon in 1960s when I was a girl, I strode into my quiet kitchen counter in the center of my Dutch blue house in the suburban Oyster Bay, Long Island, New York. I slid into a seat at a large, round wooden table, joining my maternal grandparents, my Nana and Daddy Ed, who lived with us, froze when they saw me enter the kitchen. They gleamed with delight. "'Miss Kitta!' they exclaimed. It was as if they were out of air and I had appeared with oxygen masks. Their love was a thunderbolt. I scanned my simple little body, from my puffed sleeve shirt and tan overalls to my white socks and sneakers. I thought I was sparkling. As we snacked on graham crackers and milk, they spoke— it was tea time, and they were engaged in a daily ritual. I had interrupted. My mother's father was a jovial gentleman, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant blue blood with a provable lineage that dated back to the Revolutionary War and Scotland before that. He was a Yankee and an Anglophile. When he drank his tea, he would lift his cup, wink at me, and say to my grandmother, "'Pip, pip, cheerio, and all that.' My Irish Catholic Nana would feign annoyance and chide her husband of fifty-plus years. "'You know the English stole that word from us,' she would say. "'The word tiere is Gaelic.' She would clink her teacup with his, smile at me, and say, "'Tiere?' I had to agree with Nana. As she pronounced it, the word sounded similar to the English word cheery. I loved to watch how they loved each other. My mother burst in then, excited. "'Kidda, you have a package!' I ripped through the brown wrapping and discovered its contents, giving me my first glimpse of my Mary Poppins spoon. I hugged my spoon. I hugged my mother. I danced. My grandpa clapped. It took a lot of box tops, my mother added. We ate a lot of Cheerios for that spoon. I brought the spoon with me when I moved away after college. Since, I have lived in five apartments and five homes. My spoon is no longer shiny. Like me, it's worn. And if you look at it in just the right way, it sparkles.
Cheerios are still produced by the puffing technique invented in 1941 by General Mills physicist Lester Borchardt. A Buffalo News reporter who toured the company's Buffalo factory more recently observed that Cheerios are made by workers who take an oat flour base, mix it into a dough, toast it, then extrude it. Somewhere along the line, the would-be Cheerios pop like popcorn, forming tiny, crunchy morsels shaped like inner tubes. The interjection Cheerio, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is of British origin and is used as a greeting, toast, or farewell. Having a bright-as-a-buttercup box of Cheerios before you, I prefer the large 18-ounce version, can induce idolatry. The box glows. A color gradient is used in its packaging design. The color surrounding the central heart bowl image, replete with four strawberries forming eyes, a nose, and a mouth, is a butter yellow and intensifies as it radiates outward. By the time the eyes reach the box edges, the surface has warmed up to a butterscotch. The kitchen of my childhood was yellow. So was the kitchen in the home where I lived for 20 years with my husband and children. Yellow gold allows me to feel the sun on my face. I hear bees buzzing. I am back in the kitchen of my childhood. The yeasty smell of hot oatmeal fills the room. It's the aroma of morning, the fragrance of home. Oatmeal was a staple in my family. Daddy Ed showed me how to eat it, sprinkling it with a teaspoon or two of sugar, covering the porridge with milk, and throwing on sliced bananas or strawberries. Delicious. I'm alone for a moment until my mother steps in. She scoops oatmeal out of a pot on the stove and plops it into a bowl. She sits me down with a spoon and napkin. She sets a small milk pitcher on the table and absently walks out. As my teeth crunch on the sugar crystals, I hear yelling. We McPhersons rarely raise our voices. The resonance of the sound is unfamiliar and frightening to me. I peer out the kitchen door and up from my position on the main floor into the second-floor hallway of our split-level home. My mother and father are there. They stand close. They're arguing. Well, if you want them there, then my family can live here too, Dad shouts. Mom's crying. John, your father is too sick, she says. I can't take care of him. Nana and Daddy Ed climb upstairs from their room on a lower floor off the den, joining me on the landing. Only they don't see me. I'm hugging the wall. They carry suitcases. My grandfather's face is red and Nana looks down. I want to make it all stop. Daddy, I scream, no. I'm out of control, crying and shaking. I'm on my knees, begging my father, please, please, please. My father stares down at me from the far end of the corridor. I swallow and breathe out hope, but he exits into the master bedroom and closes the door. Daddy Ed pulls out one of the starched white handkerchiefs he always keeps folded in his front pocket. He kneels down and dabs my tears. There, there, little fella he says, using his nickname for me. Nana puts her hand on my shoulder and squeezes it gently. Mom leads them outside where she drives them, I learn later, to an apartment in Rigo Park, Queens, more than 30 minutes away. They'll live there now. I grab one of my brown gold bowls and my dented but queenly silver spoon and pour in my Cheerios and douse the donut-shaped bits with milk. I wait till the oat nuggets grow soggy, and then I dig in. These oat toroids are mushy and slightly sweet with a grainy flavor. It doesn't matter where I eat them. I can lean over a counter, place the bowl on my desk, or sit properly at a kitchen table with a newspaper to my left. When I've reached the bottom of the bowl, and there's only a dab of milk left, I am strangely serene. Mornings are still golden. You never know when happiness will arrive. You can't foresee when something will break. In my life, breakfast is my constant. The past is present, with its joy and sadness and lessons. I know I will be ever drawn to these objects. The love memory they evoke warms me for my day. That was Courtney DeGennaro Robinson reading Kitta McPherson's story, Cheerio. You can find that story and all of the stories from our shows on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. My God, I'm so lonely, so I open the window to hear sounds of people, to hear sounds of people.
when William Disson bought the Marketplace restaurant from Mark Rosenstein, he did so with the intention of continuing a legacy of farm-to-table fine dining. But when the recession pulled the rug out from under his feet, he found himself reinventing his cuisine to make something that was both affordable and sustainable. He's since gone on to open Haymaker in Charlotte, as well as Billy Dee's Fried Chicken, bringing eco-friendly fast foods to the North Carolina Zoo. All those environmental efforts caught the attention of the James Beard Foundation and even the U.S. State Department. And Disson has since gone on to serve as a diplomat at the World Food Summit in Copenhagen, as well as UN Summit in New Zealand and England. John caught up with him fresh off the plane from Copenhagen at the Marketplace restaurant before they started dinner service. Yeah, so um, when I bought the Marketplace in 2009, you know, I bought it, we kind of ran status quo for a few months, and then I realized, you know, crazy recession, like we couldn't do tasting menu high-end white tablecloth food anymore it needed to be we need to make this restaurant more Asheville Mm -hmm. um in Asheville 2009 10 11 12 you know it was going through a metamorphosis yeah and um you know I'd always cook farm to table from my grandparents to the place where I was you know first chef job it's always going to farmer's markets because the guys I studied under said if you want to be a great chef you have to use great ingredients and that's why we all go to the market at 8 a.m. in the morning to go pick up the fresh vegetables and the fresh mushrooms and the fresh meats and seafood because fresh food is great food. Yeah. It's like easy equation, right? And so so I bought the marketplace, you know, my um, you know, Mark Rosenstein, who had been here before, I mean, he had created this great farm-to-table concept, but it was a very kind of high-end concept. Mm-hmm. And so... Let's say we want to dumb it down. We just want to make it more approachable. Yeah. And so it, along the way, as I was doing that, people kept saying, God, you're so green. You're so green. You're, you're you know, love the sustainability. I'm just kind of thinking, well, it's like Appalachian roots, right? You know, yeah. And I watched my grandparents that, you know, you, you waste nothing, right? Yeah. You know, if, if when everything's in season, you can pickle, preserve, cure, ferment, put it up for the year, right? Because that's that's when the food tastes the best right and that's when you have it and so that's what we did you know so we you know we we con- we update our seasonal menus and we don't throw anything away it's like you know there's no you know food loss is food cost right right literally when i see people throwing food into a trash can i'm like you just threw you know 25 dollars away yeah like why are we doing that let's figure out a way to turn that into something else let's turn it into family meal let's you know let's um turn into value-added product Mm -hmm. and so it yes it's sustainable but in my opinion sustainability is also good business yeah right you know the more you throw away in a restaurant the more you're wasting and the more you waste the more money you're losing Mm -hmm. and that's you know a restaurant with super small margins you have to you got to make sure you make every penny count Mm -hmm. during the whole recession period i mean it was like try not to go bankrupt Mm -hmm. you know me and a dishwasher in the kitchen most nights in the winter and i'm going holy three degrees and I'm trying not to go bankrupt like what yeah. have I what have I done yeah um, and, and so, you're just about the restaurant at that point yeah uh, so I mean 9, 10, 11, 12 were, were rough years I mean frankly if it weren't for my wife having a job with Noah I, I don't know if if Marketplace would still be open mm-hmm. um, and because she really helped you know support our family through right. those rough times and I just worked like crazy yeah and said okay how do we reinvent how do we redo things how do we you know, make it more approachable, um, and all that. But the, along the way, I had a number of people just say, you know, we, we admire all the sustainability functions, um, with how you operate your restaurant. And we think it's admirable and, um, we want to recognize you for what you do. And I'm just kind of, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I'm not really a green piece, like you know, tree hugging hippie. Um, I mean, I definitely believe in all that stuff, but I'm not, I don't necessarily want to get up on my stump and be like, this is how you need to live your life and this is why. Right. It's just like, this is it's what you should do. And yes, could my margins be better if the, you know, if the, the big Cisco truck rolled up every day? Yeah, probably. But for me, it's also the value added to the guest, right? Like, would there be value if, would there be value if we didn't use the great local ingredients that were in season and super fresh? not my opinion not as much yeah you know um 
yes, the, the commodity product would be cheaper and we could probably make some more money, but they're, you know, I'm not supporting my community. I'm not keeping money in town here. Um, you know, I'm not creating relationships with the farmers and the people that are helping me to put food on the plate right. for my guests, right? So there's just all this value. For me, the value added in the whole supply chain mm. um, with being bought into our, our regional local food shed. Um, so yeah, along the way, you know, a number of people just said, hey, we, we admire what you're doing. A lot of people say they're doing it, but not everybody's doing it. Yeah. Um, and had some organizations like uh, Mother Nature Network, Seafood Watch, um, you know, Beard Foundation, um, Chefs Collaborative, you know, a lot of big national uh, food, you know, food organizations um, you know, honored us for what we're doing here. And along the way, I got asked to start talking about it. And, I, you know, just as a younger chef, I was kind of like, this is just what you should do. Why do I need to talk about this? Um, I actually went to James Beard Chef's Boot Camp. I went to one of their, their first boot camps. And for me, it was really powerful. And I guess it's something I, I kind of knew all along, but you know, they said, look, you know, you as a, somebody who's a leader in their community, like your voice is important, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to watch you know, watch what you're saying and and also, you know, tell tell your story through your food. And I kind of always knew I was doing that, but didn't realize that, hey, there is a bigger story in what we're doing because everybody, everybody eats. So we're all touched by food, whether we like it or not. And it, it helped me to kind of find a voice and also realize that that what we do, really in Asheville too, I mean, I think we're all kind of blinded by it because we live in this little bubble, but you know, we, we get arguments well, my CSA is better than yours, Jonathan. <laughs> right, you know, you go to other cities and they're like, a CS what? <laughs> um, well, it strikes me that it seems to me that you built your business and your career on your father's military discipline and what you learned from that. And then you seem to have transitioned it into your mother's diplomacy. And that political work that she has because it seems like you've definitely shifted a lot of that focus a little more towards yeah well it, again policy through, end of things. well through through all of it I realized you know I started finding issues with say like seafood for one so right why is a chef in Asheville North Carolina part of the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood watch and I get asked that quite a bit and they're like why do you care you live in the mountains what as a chef I noticed hey if I'm ordering black grouper you know, off the coast of North Carolina and South Carolina that, you know, back in 2000, if I ordered 30 pounds, it was one fish. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, it got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And it was just like I would ask a question about, you know, hey, why are carrots are supposed to be in season this week? Why are they not in season? Well, the farmer comes back and says, well, you know, we've had this crazy drought this year and they don't really grow this week anymore. Now they're two weeks, they grow two weeks later in the year. Mm-hmm. It's like, is it climate changing? <laughs> no, having a spouse that works for Noah, I'm sure you get an added perspective on right. That. But then at the same time, too, like seafood, it's like okay, well, why is the why is the fish getting smaller? Mm. And so I think that's also part of being a chef, right? You're constantly asking questions because there's so many variables that that change when you're using fresh products. It's not like again, like you're making widgets where you know the piece of plastic is a piece of plastic is a piece of plastic, right. you know. Tomato is not a tomato every time. The ingredient changes the dish depending on its exactly how it comes to you. So you have to constantly be analyzing and asking questions, and that's that's another thing I love about this profession too is that you're there's you're constantly challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. But with um, you know with like seafood in particular, it was like okay, well there has to be something going on. You know maybe overfishing is happening, and so I got linked up with Seafood Watch because I had reached out to them with some questions, and they. Um, you know, they came back and said, hey, we'd like you to be a part of this organization. And I started learning about it. And then I got involved with going to DC a number of times to, um, you know, to go lobby for federal fisheries management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started asking a lot of questions about why species were changing, right? Um, and why were they changing in sizes and um, led me into the whole sustainable seafood thing with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which led me into policy. And, um, you know, had the opportunity to lobby for federal fisheries management and 
to try to find ways to find better management for seafood. And, and the whole, for me, it was like this aha moment too, right? It's like, if I want to have great seafood, we have to protect where it's coming from, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise you end up with like the bluefin tuna issue, Yeah. you know, where it's almost endangered species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, okay, if I'm going to get involved with that, I need to be involved with, you know, with, with more of the farming stuff. And I had been working with ASAP. Actually, ASAP is a big reason why I moved to Asheville <clears throat> rather than some other communities I was looking at. So I'd picked up a local food guide and was like, oh, this is going to make it easy. I just have to, all the numbers are here. I don't have to go track them down like I had to in other places I lived. Right. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, just being more involved because the more involved you are, um, the more you have your finger on the pulse of the industry. And at the end of the day, you know, we are manufacturing food and we are um, in commodities trading as much as that <laughs> corporate corporatizes what we do. It's like not trying to be that way. But I think also if you don't have that mindset, you're kind of ignorant, too. Yeah, um, because I mean, look, at I just look at things and, and how ecosystem has changed over the, the past decade that I've been here at the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, probably also just drinking Asheville Kool-Aid, but I wanted to protect the environment around me because I like all these wonderful local products that we can put on the plate. Mm-hmm. And I want to protect and make sure that they're there for my kids and generations to come and that we can make our, continue to make our guests happy here because of the great local food that we're able to put on the plate. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, through all that, that led me into, like, sell these different organizations and, um, you know, really got tapped into doing a lot of public speaking and... Uh, and lobbying and uh, and advocating for food policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really been exciting, actually. Um, I got through all this stuff that kind of culminated, and a few years ago, I was asked to become part of the um, U.S. State Department's American Chef Corps to be a, a diplomat. So um, they sent me have sent me around, but they sent me over to New Zealand to do some uh, diplomatic work. So you can you can rest assured that relations between New Zealand and the U.S. at least as of now are good. <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome. Yeah, let's talk about a bit about the your work with UN, the UN. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think the kind of the next step through some of the my progress, you know, it kind of started on the local front, right? Is that you know working with ASAP and working with different nonprofits and organizations around Asheville, the typical Asheville story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how do you get more involved? We work with nonprofits because we have a ton of them, mm-hmm. um, but they're all doing really great things, and so that that kind of escalated into more national stuff and doing food policy and lobbying, you know, um, lobbying to Congress and going to the White House and talking food policy. Um, and through that, I had the opportunity to kind of go on the international front um, through the, the American Chef Corps and the State Department. And I guess through that, oppor- through that opportunity arose to get involved with United Nations Global Food Policy. Um, and it's their, uh, the SDG2s. Um, I think I sent you some information on it a while ago. Mm-hmm. But um, the whole idea is that, that the UN wants to update their food policies so they can you know, eradicate, uh, eradicate hunger um, by like 2030, which we'll see how that goes. But um, Ambitious goal. <laughs> ambitious goal, but you know, hey, you, you've gotta, you have to try, right? If you wanna, make, you wanna make strides, you at least have to have a goal mm-hmm. and implement a plan. And so through that, they created the Chef Manifesto um, for the UN's global food policy. And so I got asked to go to London last year and go get together with, you know, um, a couple dozen chefs from around the world and add our two cents to a manifesto to apply towards the UN's global food policy. So um, really exciting opportunity. Got to meet some great people and hear perspectives. And, you know, for someone from the Western world, that's like local food is sustainable and great for the world. And you know, then you meet somebody from Brazil and they're like, people are dying. We just want to feed people. Mm-hmm. Um, that something, you know, but as a perspective, as a global citizen, it's like, oh, wow, that just opened my eyes and changed my complete outlook on the food system. Yeah. Just in that one instance at, you know, at a conference. Yeah. Huh. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I've had the opportunity to do stuff. Just went and go, uh, got asked to go speak at the World Food Summit, which was a really amazing opportunity um, over in Copenhagen. And again, really, this time was more instead of chefs, is really more global policy leaders. So, you know, you had 
um, you know, directors of the Ministry of Agriculture from Slovakia and uh, you know, Department of Agriculture directors from you know South Africa and um, NGO leaders and and folks who are using public and private dollars to change food yeah. policy. Um, and so to get in the room with them and talk about you know what we're doing here in Asheville was like yeah what the hell did you talk to them about what do you have to say <coughs> to in South Africa <laughs> well you know the whole idea of the conference was better food for more people mm-hmm. and that's something through like a lot of this, this food advocacy stuff that I keep hearing have heard about for really the past decade is the future of food you know you get folks like Monsanto and they think they're saving the world because they've genetically modified everything and I Frankly, I don't know whether they're right or wrong because I'm not a scientist and I can't, I can't break it down. But I do know that from my perspective, it's like, hey, if we can, we can create little food hubs, it seems like that's the way it used to be and that worked well. Um, and if we can make that change globally and get more local food in, into people and create value-added food, um, food hubs where we are canning and pickling and preserving and saving food for the off months, the off season, that that could be a really great first step for, for a change in how we feed the world. Mm-hmm. What is, uh, <clears throat> what kind of responses do you get? What kind of reactions do you get from people there? I mean, people, you know, if, if people know Asheville, they're like, oh, we love it there. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's changed. I mean, you, you grew up here. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine, you know, Asheville from the eighties was not the, right. was not the charming, romantic, Greenpeace loving place that it is today. It was, yeah. be- it was always a beautiful place, but it didn't have the, the charm and the um, the social advocacy aspects that it does today. Yeah. Does it strike you as odd that you're being invited to talk about um, feeding people in a when you're coming from a city that's one of the ten hungriest cities in the United States? Well, and I've talked a lot about that too. You know, our CVB coins, Asheville is a foodtopia, mm-hmm. but literally just outside of Asheville is one of the biggest food deserts in the country. Yeah. Um, that's pretty ironic. Yeah. But it's also Appalachia, and that's, you know, I, I was fortunate. I grew up in a middle-class family, but outside of where we grew up in, there was people living in, you know, in dilapidated, you know, shacks and trailers and mm-hmm. whatnot that struggled to get by. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they weren't, eat, they were not eating fresh food. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one in five in Asheville goes to bed malnourished. <clears throat> right. You know? And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely implement that in a lot of the discussion when I'm talking about, about food. Um, and I think, you know, that that's also the big problem in the world is there's the haves and the have-nots. And how do we turn the have-nots into, into folks that we can feed and make part of society mm. um, so they're not malnourished? Yeah. So what do we do globally? <clears throat> You know, and again, that all comes down to policy. And I think it takes it takes the advocacy of folks like us that can get out there and say this is not right. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not. I don't like to get from a perspective where we're you know you're getting a in a yelling argument with somebody or a pissing match and say hey this you're wrong you're wrong. It's like well, let me tell you. Let's talk about why the system is broken. And here's some examples of why. Yeah. And as a leader, what can you do to help fix it? Um, and then you know, work with organizations that are even helping provide um, logistics for the leaders to say, hey, here's some perspective you can add into your policy to help make the system a little better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there, I mean, um, for a place like Asheville, what do you think the first steps are in some of those policies? What do you think? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I think in Asheville, I think access points you know, is getting folks, getting folks access to, to better food mm-hmm. and also, but also teaching them how to cook. I think that's a big thing too. You know, a lot of people don't know that you can go to most of the farmer's markets and get one-to-one snap benefit matching. Mm-hmm. Right. But problem is a lot of folks that live, live in, in a low income area. Can they get transportation to get to that market? Right. Right. Do they even know that market exists? Mm-hmm. Right. And do they know how to cook kohlrabi? Yeah. Right. What do you, what do, you do with the strange vegetables? Right. So I think there's, out? it's a multi-layered um, approach, but I think you know it, it starts with education, 
teaching people how to eat healthy. You know, I, I read something the other day about about living longer. You know, that said don't smoke, don't drink alcohol. Um, you know, get get more education. Um, you know, less stress, right? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But the the educational piece was interesting to read because it said you know most people that are well educated live longer. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And they said a lot of it's not necessarily because of their they have a degree in you know international hospitality and tourism management. It's because they have access to learning more about health mm-hmm. and how to take care of yourself. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that I've thought a lot about is that you know if we can get into schools and teach kids about hey you know kohlrabi is your friend right and this is why it tastes delicious um and hopefully that helps create a foundation for them as they grow yeah you know and teaching more you know the um something i I personally feel that i feel like our our system has said everybody has to go get a college degree and get a master's degree and get a doctorate and you you have to do all these things um but i feel like the technical schools is something that our country should really bring back again. Mm. You know, um, I think it's to teach people a trade. I think is important. Yeah. Cool. Well, I've taken up an hour of your time. I should probably let you get on the road. Yeah. Um. You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on WPVM, and that was John talking with chef, restaurateur, and culinary diplomat William Disson. You can read John's profile of Chef Disson in the upcoming November issue of WNC Magazine.
Sometimes there are elements of our culture, particularly in what we consume, that seep down into our everyday life. I've been told I have a salty tongue. Many times in the South, we hear people told that they are sweet as pie. But it's hard to find a place where food and personality have more of a blurred line than in Yiddish. It's almost as though a lot of Jewish culture seems to entirely revolve around the dinner table, often in the best way possible. For writers Joyce Eisenberg and Ellen Solnick, they grasp the connection between food and everyday life, and they also understand that connection often blurs the line between heritage and cultural evolution, particularly when it comes to what's kosher and what isn't, what's a trendy fat, and what's a holy fat. Here's Brooke German reading their story, Schmaltz. Schmaltzy is an adjective from Yiddish, but it can be found in many English dictionaries that means overly sentimental or gushingly sweet. As in, sometimes I'm in the mood for a good schmaltzy song, so I tune my car radio to the oldies station. Schmaltzy usually refers to cultural things, art or music, not food. But schmaltz the noun is the Yiddish word for rendered chicken fat. It's an essential ingredient in Jewish cooking. It adds the flavor to old world dishes like chopped liver, ribens, cracklings, and kasha vernishkis, buckwheat grains cooked with bow tie pasta. In the days before cholesterol concerns and alternative products, most good Jewish cooks collected and saved their own goose or chicken fat to use as shortening in recipes because commercial lard was not kosher and vegetable oil was almost unknown. Thinking about schmaltz got us reminiscing about butter. Growing up, butter was rare in our homes. Our moms preferred margarine, usually Fleischmann's, because it was healthier for you. We thought margarine was invented in the 1950s, but it turns out it was created 1869 by a French chemist. Prolific cookbook author and cooking maven Sheila Kaufman wrote in an article entitled 350 Years and Counting, America's Evolving Jewish Cuisine, that margarine gave Jewish cooks a way to use a butter-like substance in their meat dishes and still be non-dairy, thus conform to the laws of kashrut, not mixing meat products with dairy. We also recall seeing coffee can-like tubs of gooey white Crisco vegetable shortening in some pantries. Kaufman writes, Procter & Gamble advertised Crisco as a product for which the Hebrew race had been waiting 4,000 years. Crisco was introduced in 1911, and it was the first solid shortening product made entirely of vegetable oil. It was non-dairy and could replace butter or animal fat in recipes. Crisco is certified kosher too, in 1933, P&G published a bilingual booklet of Crisco recipes for the Jewish housewife in English and in Yiddish. Crisco is still around today. It comes in handy sticks for baking that don't have to be refrigerated. They even make a version that is butter-flavored and yellow, not the strange bright white of old. To spread on toast, there's a variety of modern choices. You can use Smart Balance, a natural oil blend that includes soybean, canola, and olive oils, or Earth Balance, its competitor. Happy that margarine has been defamed, some have returned to eating butter. A quick look around the supermarket yields many butter choices. There's the usual Land of Lakes brand, but also slow-churned European-style Plugra, or the Kerrygold Pure Irish Butter with higher butter fat content. We also have Pam, specially formulated non-stick cooking sprays, olive oil, butter flavor, and the one with flour that works so well for baking. We no longer have to grease and flour our pan, tapping the extra flour into the sink, but it might be a trade-off with all the chemicals needed to propel that flour into a spray. We're nostalgic for the old days, the ones, well, before our time, when cooks only had a choice between schmaltz and schmaltz. If you didn't save your own schmaltz in the freezer in an old soup can, you could always find it in the frozen kosher section of the supermarket. These days, it's making a comeback. Chefs are taking notice of its great taste. It's being served in fancy restaurants. Is it only a matter of time before local delis start putting those little jars of creamy, salty, artery-clogging, schmaltzy goodness back out on each table? We could mail order a half pound of schmaltz, just $6.99, from our online friends at Schmaltz Deli in Naperville, Illinois. We're pals on Twitter because they like our style and we like their name. But if we ever get to visit them, we have a funny feeling we'd want to eat the rugelach first. Pennsylvania's Joyce Eisenberg and Ellen Solnick are authors of The Dictionary of Jewish Words and The Whole Spiel. That was Brooke German reading their story, Schmaltz. 
To find that story and our original artwork, this month featuring the minimalist drawings of Nettie Fisher, head to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The incredible art on that page is by Nettie Fisher, Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Manier, and Paul Choi. Music in this episode by Thin Lips, Sylvan Esso, Mitski, Ben Lovett, Richard and Robert Sherman, John Bryan, Brooke and Will Blair, Jim O'Rourke, Nothing, Amber Arcades, and Jan Tiersen. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website and marketing, and sources our stories. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. I'm Kelly Denson, sitting in for Catherine Campbell. Have fun on your honeymoon, Catherine. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume.